And we pray, Lord, as we have been praying, so we pray again that you will show us wonderful things out of your law, that we might see Jesus amongst us stepping off the pages of Scripture and being here amongst us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So I know not everybody's up to speed with this, but I've got a little introduction going back over what we've looked at before. Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, that what he's telling us is the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what he's telling us. The gospel is the way to become a Christian. If you're at all interested in becoming a Christian, knowing what being a Christian is, this is exactly where you should be. We looked at previously uh, the agenda that's set. So the book, it sort of launches fairly well straight in, but it it does set an agenda, uh, and the agenda seems to be set in the desert. You might have noticed the repetition of the voice in the desert, Jesus uh, going in, uh, John being in the desert, and uh, Jesus being sent into the desert. So the agenda seems to be set in this, this unusual place, the desert. And trying to put it very straightforwardly, the agenda is that God is bringing his people home. Be, they were sent away in exile, and God's intention is to bring his people back. And this is about God bringing his people home. That's why the Lord goes into the desert, verse 3, uh, with straight paths to go and get his people and to bring them back. It's about God cleaning his people up. There's a little hidden quote from the book of Malachi, which talks about somebody coming to give his people a very vigorous scrub and make them really clean. Now, how are they going to do that? Remains to be seen. It's also about, in verse 8, the person who will pour out the Holy Spirit, who will baptize, who will shower, immerse with the Holy Spirit. And that, too, is an agenda that comes from the Old Testament of the Lord who takes a sort of dry ground, pours out water, pours out the spirit like water, and new life pops up like plants popping up in the desert. And that's the agenda. Last time we saw a little bit more detail of it. In verse 15, Jesus comes saying, the kingdom is here. So you could add that into the agenda, the, the restoration of the kingdom and the king being put back in place. And if you think back, I don't know how much Old Testament history you, you can bring to mind, but of course King David was the king. I'm sure you would remember that. And then King Solomon after him. And then it all gradually deteriorated. And um, so at the moment, there's no real king, although Herod is um, politically the king, but he's not the king that God has in mind. The kingdom is coming. And what do you do about the kingdom? Well, Jesus says, you, verse 15, you, you turn and believe the good news. And what does that look like? Well, the people that Jesus deals with next in verse, chapter 1, verse 16 to 20 are these fishermen. And we've come really down to earth. We're not in the desert anymore. We're in real ordinary life. And Jesus says to these people, follow me. And they leave everything 
and follow him. And that's what, that's what we've got at the moment about what the kingdom is like. It's like people who leave everything and put Jesus first. Quite a radical thing to do. So the question that we are, uh, the sort of questions that we have in our minds when we look at the text are things like, well, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And I don't want you to jump to any conclusions because it takes until chapter 8, verse 29 for the disciples to get the hang of who he is because Jesus says to them, who am I? And in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, they, Peter says, you are the Christ. So it takes him eight chapters to get to that point. So if you're not sure about Jesus, I'm not really going to try and push you this evening into making a snap decision. I'd like you to hear what Mark has to say and put it into the melting pot and let it simmer uh, for a, a while. That's what Jesus does with, with his disciples. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Well, that question gets... Uh, touched on, but again, that, that, that's something that isn't fully dealt with until later on, but it's a question worth having in mind. And, and how will he achieve it? How will he do this cleaning up of his people, uh, this bringing his people home? And what does he want of us? What response does he require? And again, this is something that's a... Um, we're only beginning to touch on that. So, in a way, I don't particularly want you to, uh, to say, oh, I came along this evening and now I became a Christian because I'm not sure that you've got all, the, all the, the data. You haven't got it all in place. Aren't I silly? I've just scratched my arm and made it bleed. Please notice then, in the, in the text, there's, a, there's some features and there's a, one of the features is this speed with which things happen. So in verse, uh, there's a lot of immediately's which I put in as I read. They're not, they're not completely obvious in the translation. If you have a look there, can you see in chapter 1, verse 18, what's the translation say? At once. Well, this is this word which you might translate immediately. Chapter 1, verse 20, first couple of words without delay. without delay so that's the immediately word um, in verse 21 it simply says when the sabbath came but the, uh, hidden in the original there is this word immediately and then chapter 1 verse 23 you have what does it say chapter 1 verse 23 just then, just then. Well, that's this word immediately and uh, verse 29 as soon as they left the synagogue, that's the word immediately, and it's in one or two other places which doesn't even crop up in the translation. Chapter 1, verse 42, what is the first word there? Immediately, immediately. so that's, that's one place where it actually is translated as immediately. So, there's a, so Mark is, uh, it keeps on saying immediately, immediately this, immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. And it's also worth noticing there's quite a lot of movement going on, quite a lot of verbs of motion. So uh, chapter 1, verse 21, what did Jesus do? Chapter 1, verse 21, what did he do? He did what? 
he went into the synagogue. Yeah, so there's a motion, isn't it? Do you see what I mean? A verb of motion. He went in. And now, let's see, I don't, I'm not sure that I've listed all of these. Let's have a look with us. So they went to Capernaum. Jesus went into the synagogue. Just follow it through with your finger. Um, so verse 25 has got a verb of motion. Come out. Yeah, that's a, a, a coming out, isn't it? And uh, verse 29, motion. Quickly is the, is the immediately. And what did they quickly do? They left the synagogue. Yeah, and they went. Yeah, uh, and 31, he went to her. The fever left her. Now, not... Yeah, we've done that in English, but if you think of it, there's quite a lot of coming and going. So it just gives you the impression of things happening. It's quite busy, you know. Okay, so that, that sets the scene for us. And there are three scenes that are going on. So there's in the synagogue. That's verse 21. They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus was in the habit of, of doing that. Uh, and then we're going to go, in, uh, when they're going to leave the synagogue, verse 29, to go to the house. And then in verse 33, uh, that's outside the house. So we're just going to look at those three different places. And the, 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 uh, the biggest scene is in the Capernaum synagogue. So what does it say? They went to Capernaum. When the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So that, I've started to do a little picture of that. So there they are in the synagogue, and while I just get my pens, because I've got some blank spaces, perhaps you'd like to think of what, what those blank spaces are. So this is Jesus. These are the people in the synagogue. And what does Jesus do? T something, 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 H. Teach. This seems to be a particular Jesus word. Uh, various people proclaim, uh, and he was proclaiming the good news, but teaching seems to be particularly something that Jesus does. So he went into the synagogue and began to teach. Uh, there's the scriptures that he might have read from or referred to, but he's saying stuff and he's teaching. And so there's the people and there's their reaction to it. What is their reaction? Amazed, that's right. Jesus is the sort of person who amazes people. So when I used to do this, when we used to do this with our kids at the tea table, we would say that everybody said, wow. I, I mean, it doesn't say that in the text, but it wouldn't be a, a, it wouldn't be a, 
um, wouldn't be completely a million miles off it would because Jesus is teaching and all the people are sitting there and rather than being bored or going to sleep or not getting the point they'll go wow amazing and just, God, did you hear that did you hear that so they're sitting there amazed at his teaching and the particular thing is not the humor of the teaching or the energy of it but what is the particular thing that that impresses them the authority <laughs> run out of space the authority so there's part of the picture now we move into verse and it's different from anything they've heard before the the teachers in their synagogues that normally teach them are, are in a completely different league to no Jesus is in a completely different league to them because he has authority and they sense that he means what he says and there's something serious and powerful about what he's teaching so an there's another ingredient suddenly I don't know whether he suddenly comes in or he suddenly jumps up uh, so there's this guy just then suddenly immediately a man in their synagogue who was in an unclean spirit literally possessed by an evil spirit so he shouts out and I, can't, I, I think there's something quite loud and uncontrolled about him because he, he shrieks in a minute but here he's saying what do you want with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the Holy One of God so a little bit of a um, what shall I say a disturbance isn't it so if, some one of you just suddenly jumped up and started shouting out. We'd all feel, oh, we don't usually do that on Sunday evening. But this, this guy jumps up and shouts out in this rather confrontational way, what have you got to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We'll, we'll take that to pieces in a moment, but that's what he says. And Jesus says to him, what does Jesus say to him? Yeah, be quiet. It literally means be muzzled. Uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, be quiet. And what else does Jesus say? Come out of him. So it's an emotion thing. Come out of him. Be silenced and come out. And then you get this great... Um, what's the word convulsion the evil spirit convulsed the man so if you could just imagine um, it, how disturbing it would be to see somebody shouting out and writhing round on the floor in convulsions uh, the spirit convulses the man and there is this huge shriek so everybody wakes up there's this huge shriek and then the man uh, the, the spirit comes out of the man so I want to assume that he's left sort of calm and rational and happy and peaceful and that was a very unusual thing guess what happened at the synagogue today you'll never guess what happened at the synagogue today that bloke that, that odd bloke he was sitting at the back. He shouted out, shouted something at Jesus. Jesus said something to him, and then he was better. Oh. 
and uh, the response of the people is what what emotion or what uh, mental description are we given about them verse 27 they're amazed so wow Jesus is an amazing person I mean Mark's always telling us how amazed they are and then this is what they say what is this you know they each nudge their neighbor and they're quite insightful about what's been going on so a new teaching a new teaching with authority and uh, this is a paraphrase now he even has authority over yeah I think that's, that's what they, they're meaning not just individual random evil spirits but the whole evil spirit thing that, that whole system uh, and it's interesting they couple them together it's not just that the authority of his teaching, his insightful teaching, but there's a spiritual angle on it as well. It's, a, it's, it's a, a, an authority over Satan. So that's a picture in the, the synagogue in Capernaum. It's quite a, you know, so if you imagine it as a snapshot on Facebook, uh, all the things going on, you could tag uh, this man and these people probably tag some of their faces you certainly tag Jesus uh, and uh, the comments are you know, wow so a few things about this and then we'll go to the second scene so it, there was an emphasis on authority wasn't there kingdom authority what sort of authority were we expecting? So usually, like the kingdom of David or the kingdom of Solomon is an authority of the sword, an authority of an army. That's how David won his battles. That's how Solomon extended his kingdom from sea to sea and shore to shore. But interestingly, this king seems to have the authority, but he doesn't do it with the sword, but with the word quite remarkable isn't it and there's more to see on this so don't don't feel that you've you've got to make a conclusion at this point but do put that into the into the melting pot the authority of Jesus just in that in that particular uh, incident and there's more to come and I want to make a comment about authority which is in Luke 6:46 Please look at Luke 6.46. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And my comment is that the person with authority if we call this person Lord that would reflect his authority, wouldn't it? And in Luke 6.46 Jesus says this why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? 
it's a challenge, isn't it? If Jesus does have this authority, if that's a correct reading of the situation, we would call him Lord rightly, and then Jesus would say, well, I expect you to do what I tell you if I'm the Lord with authority. And that's a challenge. Do we do what he tells us? Do we put it into operation? Is that the, the policy in our hearts? You know, if the Lord's told me to do it, I should do it. And if we haven't done it, do we confess it and say, I was wrong? What, what's the point of him having authority if, as far as we're concerned, it doesn't make, make much difference what he says because we won't do it? And I want to make a comment on his identity because the, the story does contribute to this question of who is Jesus. I'm just flipping back now to Mark. And there is information here about the person and work of Jesus. It comes from the, uh, the demon, the evil spirit. But he says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So... It's an unusual description, the Holy One of God, but I'm going to say I don't think this is hugely different from saying he's the, the only Son of God. I know who you are. You're the Holy One, the one and only, the one and only Son of God. And I know what you've come to do. You've come, as 1 John 3, 8 says, to destroy the work of the devil. There in a nutshell is the person and work of Jesus. He is the Son of God, and what he's come to do is to destroy the devil and all his works. Because the devil is a vandal and wrecks things and wrecks people's lives and would like to get people in his grip and do as much damage to them as possible. The devil would love to do that. And what Jesus has come to do is to destroy the works of the devil, to put people back into their right mind, to deliver them from Satan's power and clutches uh, and to do so in a decisive, authoritative way. Um, that's, what, that's the person and work of Jesus. So there's something there to inform us. And let's say a little bit about this shutting down of demonic testimony. Now, why does Jesus say, be quiet? Now, the, 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 the man has blurted out, we know who you are, have you come to destroy us? But Jesus says, don't want any more of that, be quiet. And it's one of the things that seems to go on in this, uh, uh, this part of the gospel. You see the same thing again in verse 34. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, but... Uh, I want to flag up the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. There's no doubt in their mind about who he was, but the, the difference is what they did with that information. And I want to make a challenge of this. There's the danger of demon-style knowledge. Please look at James chapter 2, verse 19. James chapter 2, verse 19. Give us a page number if somebody's got it from the back. 
1214. If you've got a Bible from the back, 1214. And James is very, very practical, but he's very wise. And he says, he's talking about whether Christian faith is really engaged with somebody's life. And he says, uh, someone will say, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, you have faith, I have deeds. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So the demons are very orthodox. They know the truth about God, but it's not the sort of knowledge that is adequate for somebody who says they're a Christian. Does anybody like to say what difference there is? Why, why is it that the demon's faith is not good enough? What, what is it that, that James says he wants in someone's life to make it different from the de demon-style knowledge? Sorry, is it? it? It doesn't mention love, does he? Although I think love is, is certainly part of it. Sorry? It's a fearful... Yeah, so that would tie in with what you're saying. It's a, it's a, it's a rep they don't like what they know. They're not attracted to it. So that would be a good point. But there's something else that he mentions. Faith, yeah. Uh, so it, it, they, they place reliance on this and... Yeah, by what I do. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's rather unpoetic, but he says the difference is that I, I put it into practice. Uh, I say I believe it, and I do something. It changes the way I act. It's very pragmatic, isn't it? it, 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 it's, it, it, it it's not asking the question, how deeply do you feel it? It's asking the question, that's what you say you believe. Do you act as if that's true? And in some ways, that's a very liberating thought. So our emotions sometimes go all over the place. And if we looked within us and said, you know, how deeply do I feel all this? How real does it all feel? We might say, oh, I'm all over the place today. But James doesn't ask that question. He says, are you living out what you say you believe. So are you putting it into practice in your deeds? And, and I think that is the essential difference between demonic so-called faith and the faith of a Christian. And there's a danger, so this is a warning, of us becoming demon-style believers, which we know it all, you know, we know it all, but we don't put it into practice. So let's go to the second scene. So we're now in the house. Yeah. Yeah, it's not perfection. It's not perfection. But it's, I think if you were to say, if it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So would, would people be able to say, they did that, they did that, they did that, and they did it because they were a Christian, and, it's, and you can see that that's what they did. 
Uh, it's that sort of obedience, not perf perfect obedience, but it is a, a, a definite change of the way you live because of faith. Is that helpful? Thank you. It's a good question. Let's go into the house then. So we're in Mark chapter 1, going back again. So we were in the synagogue, in this amazing scene that nobody there would forget in a hurry. And so much so they tell their auntie and they tell their cousin and the news about him, verse 28, spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. I don't think it spread that very evening, but it did spread quickly. Uh, and then immediately they leave the synagogue because it's uh, getting late and they go into the house. They go with James and John. Incidentally, James in Greek. Does anybody know what James is in Greek? Yaakov, yes, uh, which we would say Jacob. So Jacob, do you know the name Jacob? So it gets translated as James. Very strange. Why do English people say Jacob is James? Apparently they do. Uh, so in, in the Greek it's Yaakov, and in, uh, in Hebrew it would be Yaakov, uh, which you normally say Jacob. Anyway, so there's uh, Yaakov and John, and they've gone to the home of Simon and Andrew. And so there, there are the four of them, the sort of little embryonic Jesus group. And there's Simon's mother-in-law. She's in bed. She's very hot. She has a fever. And they tell Jesus about her. That's a rather lovely touch, isn't it? Great to be able to bring something to Jesus and say, Lord, can I bring to your attention this person, this situation? That's prayer, isn't it? They, they, it's like praying to Jesus. Can I tell you about my mum? She's not very well. And Jesus, this time, instead of doing anything with shouting or anything like that, it says, Jesus went to her, verb of motion, took her hand and helped her up. So there's Jesus going over to this lady and helping her up. And Immediately the fever left her, so she doesn't, need, she doesn't need a couple of days in bed to get over it. She's better straight away. And what does she do next? Verse 31, what does she do next? She waited on them. It, it doesn't mean that she waited as in, oh, come on, come on. It means that she was like a waiter. She, she brought them food. She probably said, oh, I feel a lot better now. Would you like some soup? And so she, 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 she waited in the sense of being a waiter. She served. It's a very marked thing. So here are my comments. Uh, this time Jesus uses a very quiet method. No shrieking, no shouting, no words of command. He just helps her up. And he, I like Jesus' variety of method. I wouldn't like Jesus to shout at me. <coughs> but the idea of Jesus taking somebody's hand and helping them up, I think is a very attractive picture. And this woman, as soon as she's saved from the fever, she begins to serve. And it's a very marked thing. Uh, saved to serve it seems to be the order of the thought. And if you were to turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 43 to 45, we would find that this is actually not just a random idea, but a keynote of 
the gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. So this is a, a key speech of Jesus. In verse 42, Jesus calls them together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is what I came to do. If you want a picture of me, don't think of you know, the ambassador to the United Nations arriving in a, a big limo with outriders. Don't think of me like that. Think of me as somebody who's cleaning up, doing the washing up when everybody else has gone home. Somebody who's serving in a lowly way. That's what I've come to do, says Jesus. And that's what you need to do if you're going to follow me. So Simon's mother is sort of right on the button with this, isn't she? As soon as Jesus has blessed her, she's out making soup or whatever it was. She began to wait on them. So I think it's a great encouragement if you are, you, you are actually a serving sort of person. And as a Christian, that comes very naturally to you. And you might think, oh, well, I don't do very much. But actually serving in that sort of way is absolutely the keynote of being a Christian. Let's come finally outside the door. So verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So let's go outside the door. The Jewish Sabbath would end when the sun went down. So it's probably a few stars coming out. Maybe they had to light a candle or two, don't know. But do you see how many people there are out there? That's those people from the far end of the village and those people from... And those people... It's just a huge crush of people out there and all the people who are unwell and all the people who are, are spiritually oppressed, they all come. So, and there's lots of words which say all, the whole town, many, many, just lots of them. And Jesus heals them. And there he is uh, healing and driving out demons. Uh, not told any of the details, but just that he did lots. And we notice also that Jesus shushes up the demons. He, would, he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So we'll say a bit about that in a moment. It's certainly a repetition of what we've already seen. So I think what this bit is telling us is really the large scale of Jesus' power. It's a town full of people. So when Jesus is doing this healing, it isn't that you know, you've really got to really summon up all your willpower and a few people are healed. Jesus just heals everybody. It's a huge 
outpouring of power. And you can see the crowds, I don't know whether you'd say a mob, but he's becoming almost overnight, and it is almost overnight, a hugely popular healer. And we'll see uh, next time, which is we, we mentioned this on Wednesday, that this isn't quite what, what, what Jesus, where Jesus wants to go. Uh, the agenda of healing. Anybody like to say anything about where this agenda comes from? So the agenda of healing. Who? Would anybody like to put that into words? What sort of agenda is it if, if Jesus is there to heal people? Full stop. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's an agenda set by people themselves. I don't think, you know, I, I've got every sympathy with somebody who's poorly wanting to be healed, but it is an agenda that's set by them, isn't it? You know, set by your bad back or uh, your poorly tummy or whatever else it is. That might not be the agenda that Jesus has in mind, because Jesus is a very um, unusual person. Uh, he doesn't just rubber stamp everything that we think is a great idea. And, you know, we can let, be left feeling quite embarrassed that Jesus says, no, that's not right at all. And in this matter of the healing, it's an agenda which you, you don't need any spiritual insight to set that as an agenda. So uh, we put that up as a little bit of a, a, a warning. And let's just come back to the secrecy thing. Why is Jesus reticent? Why is Jesus not immediately jumping on the bandwagon and say, I want you to know exactly who I am and I want you to know it now? He doesn't do that. And I've got a couple of comments on it. And one is that there is such a thing as making up your mind too quickly in Christian things. Please look at Luke 14, verse 28. Matthew, Mark, Luke, verse Chapter 14, verse 28. There is such a thing as jumping on the bandwagon too quickly. Matthew 14, verse 28. Thank you very much. Jesus says, you know, before you say, I'm going to be a disciple, just make sure you know exactly what's involved or, you know, not exactly, exactly, but you know, as much as you can. And he says in Luke 14, 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. And he says, there are people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they haven't actually counted the cost of it. And there is a cost. There is a cost to being a Christian. Jesus does make demands. And I would reckon there are hundreds of people in this city, probably maybe thousands, who at some point have said, oh, well, I'll be a Christian. But it's all gone pear-shaped because when they said that, they hadn't really taken on board what it would cost. They hadn't really understood who Jesus was. They hadn't really understood what it would involve to follow that sort of Jesus, 
They just thought, oh, this is easy. And it all went pear-shaped. So this is partly what's going on in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is going to take another eight chapters before people really begin to see who he is and are therefore really in a position to make up their minds whether to follow him. And then there's the chapters after that which spell it out even more. So, as I said at the beginning, I don't want anybody here to jump to quick conclusions about being a Christian. Make sure that you've prayed about it and thought about it and have got a a real good idea of what's involved. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, which we will see, and I don't want to give give the game away too much, Jesus is, is going to find that <coughs> excuse me, the healing can easily produce a false emphasis which gets in the way of what he really wants to do. And here's a warning, if you like, about the you know, American TV evangelists uh, who offer healing, who offer health and wealth, and say, if you just follow Jesus, you have everything that you had already on your agenda. And Jesus is really saying, hold on, I don't want you saying that sort of stuff. I don't want the false emphasis. I don't want anything that gets in the way of really what I want to talk to you about. And that's what we'll find out next time.